Hello, my dear listeners. You've once again found your way to Counter Melody, and I, Daniel Gundlach, as your host, am here to present to you the greatest singers who will illuminate our path with their song, guiding us to a brighter day. this week's episode. Hi everyone, I'm sure we all have artists that we particularly treasure. I have more than a handful, as my friend Elliot was joking just the other day about, oh, this singer is one of my very favorites, and this is another of my very favorites. And it's true that one of the most wonderful things for me about putting this podcast together is that I get to listen to singers and reacquaint myself with their artistry. Even singers that I really love, I tend to see in a different light after I've prepared a complete episode on them. Now, exactly two years ago, I was planning an episode on Maria Ewing a singer who has always fascinated me. We were on our way to Vienna on a short vacation. We arrived, and the first thing I noticed upon looking at my phone was the news that Maria Ewing had just died. I was really overcome with grief, and it's a sadness that lasts to this day. She was someone who marched to the beat of her own drum She heard her own music. She did everything her own way. And I think it's entirely appropriate that today I have two different people introducing Maria Ewing. First is Paul Padillo, whom I got to know precisely because of my posting of this episode, because he also is a Maria superfan. Paul writes brilliantly and passionately about opera on his blog, and he also maintains a Facebook page that is very active with very, very smart people, all who love opera. So I asked him if he would very kindly put something together for me, and he was a little reticent about it, but I applied the thumbscrews, and finally I said to him, Do it for Maria. And boy, did he. He's come up with such a beautiful tribute. Then, out of the blue, the very same day I was having this exchange with Paul, my dear friend Janet Williams sent me her own favorite episode recommendation. I didn't know she was going to choose Maria Ewing. And Janet comes at it from a completely different direction. So... I'm so thrilled to have both of these wonderful people and dear friends together speaking from their own vantage point about what made Maria Ewing the extraordinary artist that she was. I should just mention a little link between the two that I found out. Paul was actually present at one of Janet Williams's appearances as Sophie in Rose and Cavalier at the Washington Opera. This was also a performance in which the great Helen Donat, who Janet also mentions in her introduction, made her first appearances as the Marshallin. 
and Paul told me that this was one of his most memorable nights in the theater. So that is another thing that brings this whole thing together. So here first is Paul Padillo, followed by my dearly beloved Janet Williams. Thank you all for listening. Hello, Counter Melody fans and family. My name is Paul Padillo, and Daniel has graciously invited me to do the introduction to one of my favorite podcasts on one of my favorite singers, the marvelous Maria Ewing. It was actually through a mutual appreciation of Maria that I first met Daniel and became acquainted with Counter Melody, and what a joy it's been getting to know both the podcast and to hear and even learn more of so many singers we've been blessed with and by. It's difficult to believe Maria is no longer with us, at least not physically, as we approach the second anniversary of her passing. Maria was a singer who touched my heart and riveted me with her performances throughout my entire adult life, and even a few years before that. Although listening to opera since early childhood, my first major live experiences were not the usual introductions, but rather unusual ones for a newcomer. Peter Grimes, Boris Gudinov, La Pericole, Zalame, and of course Poulenc's Dialogues of the Carmelites. In fact, it was as a 17-year-old kid that I attended one of the premier performances of John Dexter's now legendary, some might say definitive, production of Poulenc's masterpiece. While it was primarily to hear two of my favorite singers, Regine Crespin and Shirley Verrett, what happened was one of those things one can never plan on, but when they happen, watch out. I did not expect to have my heart stolen and then shattered by this beautiful creature, Maria Ewing, as Blanche. Too shocked to even cry at the opera's powerful ending, I knew the deal was sealed and I became a lifelong fan of everything she did. Yes, this even included roles that some thought she'd be wiser not to take on. But Maria was wise, and she was fully aware of the impact she could make in those roles. Whatever it was she sang, from Purcell, Mozart, Rossini, Strauss, and Monteverdi, to Jerome Kern, George Gershwin, Fats Waller, or Shane Hill, all of it, every bit of it, spoke to me. It spoke to me of magic, the magic of the art of singing, of words and music coming together in a way that is inescapable, inseparable, perfect, really. In opera, Maria was a phenomenal partner, always tuned into her character and its relationships with the others to put across the story believably, which is, well, not always the case with singers. In popular music and jazz, Maria was an artist who you never felt was just singing to the crowd, but rather to each individual making up that crowd. How unique is this? I'll tell you, very. There was always sincerity, always truth in Maria's voice, and that came through in the way she used it. You could hear it. You could feel it in her sound. And if, like me, that sound spoke to your heart, well, it stays there forever. The term sui generi gets tossed around a lot with artists, but with Maria, it's apt, it's fitting, for truly she was one of a kind. And how lucky were we to have her in our world. Hello, and welcome to my favorite Counter Melody podcast. I'm Janet Williams, and I first want to thank Dan for inviting me to introduce my favorite podcast, which was in no way an easy selection. There are so many wonderful and important episodes that are thoroughly informative and always entertaining. 
I had especially enjoyed those episodes highlighting African-American singers like my teacher, Camilla Williams, and Grace Bumbry, Florence Quivar, Shirley Verrett, Leontine Price, and Jesse Norman, and many others from whom I had personally benefited and learned. These singers opened doors and provided much-needed role models to a young, aspiring African-American opera singer like myself. But there were also podcasts featuring some of my mentors along the way, great singers like Regine Crespin, Rary Grist, and Helen Donat. But what eventually solidified my choice was remembering the singer whose voice I discovered much later, someone from my hometown who made her start with the same opera company that gave me my first professional opportunities and who shared the same mentor with me who guided both of our young careers. And that is the incomparable Maria Ewing. As a young and upcoming opera singer and fellow native Detroiter, I had heard about Maria Ewing for many years, but had never actually heard her sing. Our mutual mentor and friend, David DeKiera, founder of Michigan Opera Theater and the Detroit Opera, often mentioned her to me when discussing the singers he had hired and mentored over the years. In fact, Maria had debuted there as Rosina in the first full opera that Michigan Opera Theater had produced, Il Barbiere di Siviglia. And of course, like everyone else in the world, I'd heard about the fabulous and provocative Zalome, where she literally let all the veils fall. (laughs) She intrigued me, but for some reason, the curiosity never led me to actually going to find some listening material. Years later, her daughter, the director, Rebecca Hall, would produce a film called Passing, based upon a story of two black female friends, one of whom embraces her culture and the other who denounces it completely. It interested me because of my own family history with passing episodes also prevalent. And Rebecca uncovered hidden parts of her own past in that of her mother's in an episode in the television series Finding Your Roots. Here, she discovered through DNA testing that her grandfather, Maria's father, was really a black man who had passed for either white or Native American for decades. My grandfather's brother had done the same. These subtle parallels in our histories intrigued me, and when she died, I listened to Dan's memorial episode. I heard her voice and her artistry for the very first time, and let me tell you, it shook me to my core on so many levels. This amazing, fearless stage animal who dared to sing what spoke to her and defied the norms in so many ways. Her authenticity, her passion, and her work ethic, along with her fierce protection of her way of presenting in the world of opera and so-called crossover, all of that inspired me and left me with a profound respect for her work. I hope you enjoy rediscovering the vast artistry of Maria Ewing as much as I have. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each, but the primary spotlight will always be 
on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me. And now, this week's episode. Hello everyone! It's Black History Month 2022, and as one of my most devoted listeners has stated to me personally, at Counter Melody, every month is Black History Month. And it's true, I don't believe in, if you will, segregating artists of color to be celebrated only in one given month. That said, however, I have a wide range of artists that I'm going to be presenting to you. In fact, I have so many of them that I'm actually going to do over the next few weeks two episodes per week, one posting on Friday and the other on Tuesday. The Friday ones will be, now I am doing a little segregating, opera singers, and the Tuesday postings will be of pop singers, but pop singers that are not as well known as they should be. I said that I was happy about this being Black History Month, but there is something that happened almost a month ago that made me profoundly sad, and that was the death at the age of 71 of the extraordinary, the exceptional Maria Ewing. She died of cancer at her home outside of her native Detroit on January 9th. I had already been planning a Maria Ewing episode, and I will explain the varied reasons for that once we get underway. But let's begin with Maria Ewing in a 1985 recording, which was also used as the basis for a film singing Dido's Lament, When I Am Laid in Earth.
Maria Ewing was a chameleon. The range of characters that she portrayed and music that she sang is simply mind-boggling. In addition to that, she was perpetually stretching her boundaries, sometimes past the point of comfort, in her search for artistic truth. This meant that she often took on roles which, at first glance, appeared to be outside of her vocal capabilities, but which, for the most part, she managed to make her own. But she never took the easy way out. She was always interested in digging into the characters. So many times she spoke in interviews about opera being so much more than simply beautifully sung sounds. So just to give a sense of who this artist was, we're going to sample three things right at the top. Boom, boom, boom. Spanning more than 20 years. Completely different repertoire, completely different musical styles. First, we're going to hear Maria Ewing in the soundtrack of a 1976 film of Les Nozze di Figaro. Karl Böhm is conducting the Wiener Philharmonica, and Maria Ewing is perhaps the most physically compelling and sexually precocious Cherubino that I have ever seen. Here is an excerpt from Voi che sapete. Thank you. 
This example highlights a challenge that an audio podcaster faces in trying to convey what it was that made Maria Ewing so exceptional, because her physicality, her exotic beauty, her dramatic fortitude are among the most compelling things about her work. Many of the excerpts today come from videos in which she is featured. But I think in most examples, the vocal element, the musical element, is equally strong. We're going to see that, or rather hear that, in the next excerpt from a portion of probably her most famous role, Zalome. Now, what Ewing on the map vis-a-vis her Zalome is that she ended the Dance of the Seven Veils buck naked. Now, for some people, that was an end in and of itself, and contributed to her notoriety. But I found an interview yesterday, which I found enormously compelling, in which Maria Ewing spoke about Zalome's dance as being a voyage of discovery for the character, finding out who she, Zalome, really is. And I warrant, when she took on parts like this, it was also a voyage of self-discovery for Maria Ewing herself. One of the things I find most compelling about her, and which we will encounter over and over in the course of today's episode, is the way that innocence and carnality are combined. Maria Ewing sang her first Zalome in Los Angeles at the invitation of the company head Peter Hemmings. Interestingly, she only appeared in this opera in this production, which was directed by her soon-to-be ex-husband, Peter Hall, a towering figure in his own right in the world of theater and opera. He founded the Royal Shakespeare Company, and he was married to Maria Ewing from 1982 to 1990. Here is an excerpt from a live performance of that production, This is from Chicago in November 1988, and this is the section in which Zalome speaks aloud her newfound obsession with the mouth of Johanna Ann. In his horrified reaction to this outburst, we hear briefly the Johanna Ann of Sigmund Nimsgern.
Maria Ewing was also a superb performer of pop music. In the 90s, she began singing more pop material. Two different albums were released, one studio, one live, and there's also some live material of her in the early 2000s singing in a jazz club in London. We're going to hear examples of all of those. First, let's listen to the climax of Don't Rain on My Parade from Funny Girl. This was a live performance at the Barbican Center on the 10th of May, 1997. Your turn at bat, sir. At least I didn't fake it. Bat, sir. I guess I didn't make it. Get ready for me, love, cause I'm a comer. I simply gotta march, my heart's a drummer. Nobody, no, nobody is gonna rain on my By the way, I was so taken with the performances of Maria Ewing and pop music that I am putting out a bonus episode today for my Patreon subscribers, featuring Maria Ewing in performances, both studio and live, of pop music from 1990 to 2001. For those who are interested in becoming Patreon subscribers, please go to patreon.com countermelody where you too can make a donation, either a monthly one or a once-a-year contribution, with which you will gain access to all of the bonus material that I have thus far posted. This upcoming episode will be episode 34, and I would like to acknowledge and welcome my newest supporter, Ralph. Thank you so much for your contribution, Ralph. I hope others will be inspired to follow suit. Now let's get back to the program, shall we? Maria Ewing was born in Detroit on the 27th of March, 1950, the youngest of four daughters. Her mother was of Dutch descent, and her father claimed to be descended from the Sioux tribe. When Maria Ewing was about 17 years old, an incident occurred with previously friendly neighbors attacking her father verbally with the N-word and she became aware that perhaps the story that he had told of his proud Native American ancestry was not entirely true. I found an interview with Maria Ewing from 1999 in which she speaks quite openly about this question and defends 
her father for the choice that he made, for in doing so, he sought to protect his family from the systemic racism so prevalent in the United States of those years. In fact, as people probably know, her daughter, the director and actor Rebecca Hall, in her search for the truth of her family's ancestry, appeared on the show Finding Your Roots, and it was discovered that her maternal grandfather, Maria's father, was what at the time they called mulatto, that the family's history included notable and quite celebrated African-American ancestors. By the way, Rebecca was able to share this with her mother before her death, and by all accounts, Maria Ewing was very thrilled to receive this information and to be able to fully embrace her heritage. Let's continue now with the story of her early life. Maria's mother made note of her exceptional voice and encouraged her to pursue singing. As Maria herself has said in interviews at the time, she thought that this was a slur vis-a-vis her own pianistic talents. But in fact, once she began studying voice with a local teacher named Marjorie Gordon, it was quite clear that this was an exceptional voice and an extraordinary talent. Through a series of happy accidents, shall we say, or synchronicity, she found herself in Cleveland, where she auditioned for study at the Cleveland Institute of Music. She was accepted there, and her teacher was none other than another one of my favorites, Eleanor Stieber. Following her graduation in 1970, she moved to New York at the encouragement of her young mentor, James Levine. It was there that she studied with Jenny Turrell, yet another one of my favorite singers. Maria, however, did not attend Juilliard or any of the music schools there, but instead supported herself with office and sales work. She made her professional debut in Detroit in 1970, singing Rosina, and gained her first enormous critical success when she sang at the Ravinia Festival in the summer of 1973 under the baton of James Levine. From there, she was hired by San Francisco Opera, where she assumed the first of her Mozart roles, Dorabella, in Così fan tutte. But I've been talking too much. Let's listen to Maria Ewing under the baton of James Levine in a performance from Tanglewood in the summer of 1978. This is the Laudamus Te from Mozart's C minor Mass. This is, for me, one of the best examples of Maria Ewing's exceptional coloratura technique.
had mentioned that Ewing's debut was as Rosina in Rossini's Barbara Seville. This was a role that she sang repeatedly and in many different venues, including Houston, Washington, The Met, and Glyndebourne. A video was made of a live performance from Glyndebourne, and from that video, we're going to hear a truncated version of Una Voce Poco Fa, which, again, she sings with such delight, aplomb, sassiness, and delectable characterization. It's just such a winning performance. brief sampling of some of Maria Ewing's Mozart, Mozart roles, shall we? We know about the Cherubino, which for me is borderline definitive. She also sang the role of Idamante in Mozart's Idomeneo at San Francisco in the fall of 1977. There was a radio broadcast of the opening night, and I'm going to offer you the quartet Andro Ramingo e Solo, which is led off 
by Maria Ewing's Idamante. In other roles, we hear Christiane Edapierre as Ilia, Carol Neblet, who I promise, I promise, I promise I'm doing an episode on in the very near future, as Eletra, and in the title role, the Swiss tenor Eric Tapie. John Pritchard is the conductor. Now, in many of these Mozart operas, Maria Ewing sang more than one role, and we're going to have an example of that right here. In 1980, in Geneva, she performed Zerlina in Don Giovanni, opposite the Don of Ruggiero Raimondi, in a controversial production that was directed by Maurice Béjart. Here's La Cidarem with those two artists. The Orchestre de la Suisse Romande is conducted by Horst Stein. Thank you. 
later, Maria Ewing sang the role of Don Elvira at Blindborn, which was subsequently recorded commercially and released on what at that time was called EMI Records. We know that this was a very important house for Maria Ewing. She met Peter Hall there when she was singing Dorabella in Così. She often premiered important roles at that theater, examples of which we will hear throughout the episode. And here is the very brief but fiery performance she offers in that studio recording of A Fugil Traditor, as Don Elvira intercepts the would-be seduction of Zerlina. Bernard Heitink conducts the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and we will hear him again later in the episode. <laughs> 
already played Maria Ewing's Cherubino. Now let's listen to a role which she took on a single time at Lyric Opera of Chicago in the fall of 1987, Susanna. There's also a radio broadcast of this performance from which I present to you De Vieni Non Tardar, Susanna's last act aria.
One of Maria Ewing's most stinging and almost terrifying portrayals is the title role in Claudio Monteverdi's L'Incoronazione di Poppea. I'm going to play you two short excerpts from the video that was made of this Lineborn performance from the summer of 1984. In this case, the performing edition being used is Raymond Lepard's version, which had first been done more than 20 years earlier at Glyndebourne, and at that time was also recorded. There is a lot that is wrong with this realization. For one thing, the high-voiced male parts, Ottone and Nerone, are given to a baritone and a tenor. But I grew up listening to these very lush realizations, almost rewritings by Raymond Lepard of the music of Monteverdi and Cavalli, and I still have a very tender spot in my heart for these versions. We're going to hear two very brief excerpts with Maria Ewing as Poppea. First, she's facing off with her former lover, Ottone, here played not by a countertenor, but by the baritone Dale Dusing. She tells him to back off and leave her alone. I belong to Nero now. I sang the role of Ottone in this opera, and I must confess, it was a great experience. These people are all so reprehensible, so hateful, and so human, and I have always loved this opera in whatever realization it's being performed. Opposite the tenor Nero of Dennis Bailey, we hear her coming together with Nerone after he has just banished his wife Ottavia into exile. This is just the beginning of a longer extended duet, which starts with the words, Signor, I giusto cagione, you were completely right to send Ottavia into exile. And he promises her that she will be his new empress. And the way that she pushes him, pushes him, pushes him, and then once he says, yes, this is going to happen, then she bursts out into refulgent song. Signor, signor, I, I 
particular vocal quality lent itself best to this material. I'm going to play you a number of excerpts of her singing both opera and concert repertoire, while also acknowledging her performances of two parts that we're not going to hear today, but for which she was justly celebrated. The first, of course, is Blanche in Dialogues of the Carmelites. Maria Ewing appeared in the Met premiere of this opera, I think it was in 1977, opposite Shirley Verrett and Régine Crespin and Mignon Dunn. I saw her in that part. She was unbelievably poignant and moving. I saw it on the Met tour in Minneapolis. I can't even exactly remember when that was, but let's just say it was the early 80s. I believe that's right. This was the role that she sang more than any other at the Met. You can actually find a video that was made later in the 1980s. I highly recommend it. The other French role that we're not going to hear today is Berlioz's Didon in Les Troyens, the role with which she returned to the Metropolitan Opera after a seven-year absence. But we're going to turn instead to her portrayal of a role that she sang less frequently, but so compellingly. This is Charlotte in Werther by Jules Massonet. In the fall of 1978, she appeared opposite José Carreras in the title role at San Francisco Opera. Again, I'm going to play you two very short excerpts that show the passion that she brought to a character that is often, too often, played as fairly wishy-washy. But the passion that she summons shows us what a character like Werther would find in her, that he would develop such a strong attraction and, indeed, suicidal obsession with her. The first excerpt we're going to hear is of a very short outburst, I can't even call it an aria, Va, laisse couler mes larmes. The thing to listen for, of course, is that fantastic saxophone obligato that goes through the piece. This aria inspired me to become an opera singer. I had a very disturbing dream in which my singing... <laughs> of this aria figured prominently, and upon awaking, I decided then and there on the spot that I was going to become an opera singer. This is the absolute truth, and I'm not kidding you. So when I listen to this aria, I have a very specific association with it. By the way, Antonio de Almeida, the Portuguese conductor, leads the orchestra here. <laughs> 
Now here is another outburst that follows very shortly after the Va les mes larmes. This is Charlotte singing this incredibly passionate passage, Seigneur Dieu, begging the Lord to give her the courage to face Werther. about Maria Ewing's exceptional ability to combine innocence and carnality. We already heard that in her Cherubino, in her Zerlina, in her Zalome. This juxtaposition of qualities is perhaps heard to its greatest effect in her portrayal of Mélisande in Claude Debussy's Peleas et Mélisande. I have related many times on this podcast how this is one of my very favorite operas, and it received an extraordinary recording in 1992 with Claudio Abbado leading the Wiener Philharmonica. We're going to listen to a portion of the first scene of Act Two, where the Peleas of the wonderful French baritone François Leroux brings Maria Ewing's Mélisande to a fountain in the park outside the castle that is known as La Fontaine des Aveugles, the Fountain of the Blind. She begins playing with her wedding ring, bestowed upon her by Pelias's half-brother, Golo, and of course, 
she accidentally drops the ring into the fountain and it is not to be retrieved. Nous reviendrons un autre jour. 
notre rencontre. Midi sonnait au moment où la nouette tombe. Comment dire à Gaulois si elle demande où il est La vérité, la vérité. Maria Ewing sang a great deal of concert repertoire, most of it unrecorded, from orchestral songs of Mahler and Alban Berg, to Berlioz's La Mort de Cléopâtre, to many, many others. But we're going to hear excerpts from two significant French concert pieces that she did record. The first is, again, Claude Debussy. This is his La Damoiselle Élue, which is based on a translation of a Rossetti poem. Much earlier in the history of the podcast, I featured a complete recording by the French soprano Françoise Augeas. Here we have Maria Ewing doing the climax of this strange little cantata, which begins with the words, Elle-même nous amènera, the blessed damosel who's waiting longingly for her lover to join her in heaven, sings in anticipation of his arrival how she will go to the Lord himself and plead her case. Claudio Abbado leads the London Symphony Orchestra in this 1986 recording. Simon Rattle, with whom Maria Ewing recorded Ravel's orchestral song cycle, Scheherazade, described Maria Ewing's performance of this cycle as X-rated. I'm not sure I agree with that assessment, but there is a certain amount of slithering around between the notes in this recording, and I think at this point it would not be remiss to discuss some of Maria Ewing's vocal peculiarities. 
some of which might have already been apparent, but which really need to be addressed. She was, as Martin Bernheimer referred to her in a review of her Zalome, a creature of the stage. She never made a beautiful sound for the sake of making a beautiful sound or sang a lick of coloratura simply to show off. She was always in search of a greater artistic truth. She prepared her roles with such assiduous care, but sometimes she made some very peculiar choices regarding the vocalization of those roles. So we're going to hear a little bit of that in this Scheherazade and in the next few selections as well. To me, the primary issues are two. First of all, she doesn't always vibrate her tone. The tone has a way of turning dead and maybe not unsupported, because when I watch the videos of her singing, I see that it's a very strong technique, and yet I think she sometimes makes dramatic choices that lead to a very peculiar and hollow sound, which she may have thought was more expressive than it actually was. I think that's the nicest way of putting it. The second vocal issue may be connected to the first one, and it has to do with her consonants. When she begins her consonants, she often starts them before engaging her breath, so that the consonant becomes dragged up to, creating a swooping effect. And when this is combined with the lack of a spinning tone, it can often mean that the singing is a little pitchy and there is not the kind of integrity of vocal line that I always want to hear. Now, this issue is not always apparent, but the two vocal issues often go hand in hand and create what, for me, can be a rather disconcerting effect. But again, they're not always there. In this excerpt from the first song from Scheherazade, Aziz, we already hear some examples of that, which perhaps my more astute listeners have already picked up on, because I think that from the very beginning, this was an aspect of her vocal technique, which became more and more, shall we say, exaggerated or pronounced. Oh, 
One of Maria Ewing's early assumptions in San Francisco was the title role of Jacques Offenbach's operetta La Pericole. She sang the role again in Geneva in the winter of 1982, and that performance was recorded and televised. She is an enormously appealing Pericole, and this is an excerpt of the aria Tu n'es pas beau, which she sings to her lover Piquillo when she goes to rescue him from the prison where he has gotten himself locked up. We hear him very briefly in the person of tenor Neil Rosenshine, and Max Soustro leads the Orchestre de la Suisse Romande. This is the second verse of Tu n'es pas beau. Interestingly, the librettists of La Pericole, Henri Meillac and Ludovic Alevi, based their libretto on a work of Prosper Mérimée. Now, you may recognize that name because he also provided the source material for Carmen, which was one of Maria Ewing's most controversial assumptions. It led to her breach with the Metropolitan Opera and her portrayal was how do we put this, at certain points distinctly anti-vocal. She received some absolutely vicious reviews for her performance of this role, and yet I think that as an actor she is very near her peak. She sang this for the first time in Glyndebourne in 1985 under the baton of Bernard Heitink, and again at Covent Garden in 1991 under the baton of Zubin Mehta. Both of these performances are available on DVD, and they are a feast for those who love great operatic acting. The singing is spotty, and sometimes it's brilliant. I would say in 1991, it's a little better than it was at Glyndebourne, where the vocal effects were at their most, shall we say, exploratory. In spite of that, it's a fantastic performance, and its vocal peak in Act 3. I'm going to play you the so-called card aria, En vain pour éviter les réponses amères. Carmen's two friends and cohorts, Frasquita 
and Mercedes are performed by Elizabeth Collier and Jean Rigby. Alongside Zalome, Maria Ewing began assuming heavier and heavier roles, including the title role in Dmitry Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk. I saw her do this after she had returned to the Met. I think it was probably around 1994, if I'm not incorrect there. This was a production directed by Graham Vick, Maria Ewing, gave one of the most searing operatic portrayals I have ever seen on any stage. I would place it alongside Teresa Stratus's Swat Angelica and John Vickers's Various Assumptions and Leonie Riesenek's performance of the Kabanicha in Katya Kabanova as four of the greatest acting 
singers that I've ever seen on the operatic stage. That said, Ewing's Katerina Ismailova was the most strangely vocalized performance that I have ever experienced. I thought that I originated this comment, but I actually saw it also in a review in the New York Times of her performance. It sounded as if on the high notes she was inhaling, and I used to do a demonstration of that, which I'm certainly not going to do now. But this is the very beginning of the opera, and she sings the entire piece this way, I don't know if she thought that this was the most interesting way of characterizing the bored, libidinous, and amoral Caterina, but it certainly makes for a strange listening experience. And by the way, she did do a complete recording of this under the conductor Myung Won Chung with the Orchestre de l'Opéra Bastille. In 1992. It's that recording that we hear right now. Another role that Maria Ewing took on at this time, for which she would appear to have been completely vocally unsuited, was that of Puccini Stowska. This was a part which Peter Hemmings in Los Angeles asked her most fervently to take on. And she did, and she sang in a certain number of performances of it following that. There's one performance that I have been able to find of Maria Ewing in this part, this is from Seville in the late fall of 1991. This is her Visidarte, and there may be some of those peculiar qualities that I mentioned earlier, but there is also, like there was in John Vickers' performance of Recondita Armonia, 
this sense that there is a real character here. There's a human being with desires, motivations, desperation. And it's very rare to hear this aria, to hear either of those arias invested with the kind of meaning that both figures and here Maria Ewing bring. <laughs> I saw Maria Ewing one last time in her final performances at the Met when she took on the role of Marie in Albanberg's Wozzeck. One would have thought that this would be an ideal role for her, 
even at that relatively late point in her career. Without going into a lot of detail, I will simply say that I was disappointed, both vocally and dramatically, in her portrayal. So I was very pleased when, in the past few weeks, someone posted a performance that she did with the New York Philharmonic from that exact same period, the spring of 1997. This is of a peculiar hybrid piece. Claudio Monteverdi wrote an opera called L'Arianna, which was mostly lost except for the extended lament for Ariadne. In the 1930s, Karl Orff did an arrangement of this piece, setting a German translation of the text by the controversial poet and educator Dorothee Günther. It's this piece that Maria Ewing performed with Court Mazur and the New York Philharmonic in the spring of 1997. Her voice is, to my ear, still in exceptional shape, and the intensity that she brings to the part is once again unmatchable. Appearances, as far as I can tell, Maria Ewing retreated more and more from the public eye and began giving many, many fewer performances. So I was very moved to find that in the winter of 2011, she appeared with the Nederlandse Reisoper, the Dutch touring opera, 
in Poulenc's monodrama La Voix Humaine. I don't know how you feel about La Voix Humaine. It is a piece that I find enormously compelling and one that at a certain point in my career I fancied myself actually taking on. Well, that never happened. But lucky for us, Maria Ewing did portray the heroine in La Voix Humaine at the age of 60, almost exactly 11 years ago. The voice is not what it once was, but I think it holds together remarkably well, and her performance, a short excerpt of which was posted on YouTube, is flat-out devastating. See what you think. Now, vis-a-vis Maria Ewing as pop singer, I've already sort of... uh, Trumped my ace. If you will, by playing her exceptional recording of Don't Rain on My Parade. But I do have three further pop performances to play for you. In 1990, Maria Ewing put out a recording called From This Moment On, 
in which she was accompanied by the pianist and composer Richard Rodney Bennett in certain numbers and the Royal Philharmonic under Neil Richardson in others. I'm going to play one of my favorite songs for you, which I think Maria Ewing and Richard Rodney Bennett do marvelously well. That's Harold Arlen and Ted Kohler's When the Sun Comes Out. When the sun comes out And that rain stops beating on my window pane When the sun comes out There'll be bluebirds round my door Singing like they did before that old star broke out And my man walked off and left me in the rain Though he's gone, I doubt If he'll stay away for good I'd stop living if he should Love is funny Bright and sunny Suddenly the cyclone came I'll never be the same Till that sun comes out And that rain stops beyond my window pane If my heart holds out Let it rain In 2001, Maria Ewing did a number of appearances at a jazz club in London, where she was accompanied by two guitars, Simon James and Shane Hill, from the jazz combo called Chimera. Here she does a beautifully Bachian version of All the Things You Are by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein. <laughs> You are the promised kiss of springtime that makes the lonely winter seem long. Trembles on the brink of a lovely song. You are the angel glow that lights a star 
that Voix Humaine in 2011, Maria Ewing did appear occasionally on stage and in concert. In 2006, she took on the role of the Fairy Queen in Gilbert and Sullivan's Iolanthe. I've not found any sound documentation of those performances, but there is a wonderful series of photographs that were taken of her on stage in costume, looking exotic and imperious in that role. In 2010, she appeared with the conductor John Wilson, leading the John Wilson Orchestra, in a concert performance called Rodgers and Hammerstein at the Movies. This was subsequently recorded and released, again, on the EMI label. Here's her performance of Belly High, which is so unmannered and so profoundly moving that it left me breathless and for once speechless. Your own special hopes, your own special dreams, bloom on the hillside and shine in the street. If you
I hope that today I have given you, my darling listeners, a chance to experience the greatness of Maria Ewing in all its manifestations and with all its flaws. I don't think that it is untoward to compare her with the very greatest singing actors in opera, including Maria Callas, John Vickers, Renata Scotto, Leonie Riesenek, Teresa Stratas. I stand by that. I hope that I've made my case and that if you were a Maria Ewing detractor, maybe you have slightly changed your stance. It's funny, I think, that Maria Ewing's greatest fame now, apart from her racial heritage, remains with her Zalome performances, in which she appeared 100% nude, not even with a G-string, blah, 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 blah. We all know the story. It really is something to see, and not just her naked body, but her intensely committed performance. But even that performance, I suggest highlights that fascinating interplay in her artistic personality between innocence and carnality. Now for the final selection today, I have something that represents pure innocence and is so profoundly moving. It's a performance of Mahler's Symphony No. 4. The final movement is a setting from Des Knaben Wunderhorn, that German folk poetry collection. The song that Mahler used is called Das Himmlische Leben, Life in Heaven, and it's a child describing all of the things that go on up there. We're going to hear the final portion of this movement, of this song, in which the soprano sings the words, Kein Musik ist ja nicht auf Erden. The music that we hear in heaven is nothing like that which you hear on earth. This was a live performance, one of the so-called Kerst Matinee, Christmas Matinees, for which the Konzertgebouw Orchestra is famous. The orchestra is led by its conductor, Bernard Heitink, and once again, we hear the extraordinarily gifted Maria Ewing. May she rest in peace.
my dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach. <laughs>